Let's begin our reading in John chapter 6 and verse 30. It says, So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our forefathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen Me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives Me will come to Me, and whoever comes to Me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do My own will, but the will of Him who sent Me. And this is the will of Him who sent Me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given Me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does He now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. But the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum, when many of his disciples heard it. They said, This is a hard saying, and who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted to Him by the Father. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that You are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You know, when you look at our politics, 
And we're beginning to see more and more of it again now because as we start to get closer to the next presidential election, you have more and more people start to jump into the race and present themselves as a viable candidate for the presidency of the United States. And and everybody's trying to get kind of the ear of the public and get some momentum going behind their campaign. And and I know you did not come here to listen to politics, and I don't want to talk to you about them. But here's the deal. That's kind of what's happening. Jesus is presenting signs. He healed the official son. He healed the guy by the pool. Now he has fed the 5,000. And with those miracles, he's getting the attention of the people. The fact that he would have ten to 20,000 people to feed lunch to that followed him out of town, that's, that's a big number. And so he's getting quite a few people that are flocking to him and, and wanting to see the miracles and eating the bread. And Well, when you think about it, he is the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior of Israel and of the whole world. And it's going to come to a time where he's going to come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and he's going to present himself as king to Israel. There's going to be a lot of politics involved in that. And they were as ugly then as they are now. But you know what? It looks like right now he has the momentum now. He has momentum now where if you were like a political advisor or if you were one of these guys that uh, those politicians seem to put around themselves managing their campaign and stuff like that, telling them what to do, you know what? Jesus does like exactly the opposite of what they would have told him to do. Because he's amassing quite a crowd that is following him, and it looks like he pretty much drives them away. Now, he's not truly driving them away because they're not really there. And we're going to find that out as as we kind of scan through kind of a snapshot of what's been happening here. But if you remember back in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, it says, When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. At this point, he had turned the water into wine at the wedding. People asked him for a sign of who he was. He said, speaking of his body, tear down this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. The crowd was starting to form around him. People were starting to get excited about what he was doing. But it says that he kind of, he didn't trust it. He knew that people were fickle. You know, at the end of his ministry, he's going to ride into Jerusalem on that donkey and people are going to be saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And a couple days later, they're going to be yelling, crucify him. And so Jesus, I think, is well-founded in His skepticism towards their loyalty. And so when the people are starting to get excited about the signs, He's like, yeah, they're just watching the show. They're just liking the show. When we get to John chapter 6 and verse 2, which we looked at last week, it says, And a large crowd was following Him because they saw the signs that He was doing to the sick. In verse 14, it says, When the people saw the sign that He had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is coming into the world. They were saying, This has got to be that coming guy, that one that was supposed to be another prophet like unto Moses. And He is that. And so it looks like momentum is building. They see the healings and they're getting excited about those. And then He feeds them with the bread. And now they're just like locked in. They're just like, This has got to be the guy. But if you follow it a little bit further, in verse 15 it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by Himself. And so it looks like you have a crowd and you have some political momentum and you have a crowd that's ready to take Him and put Him on the throne, which He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so it's a rightful place for Him. And what does Jesus do? He gets out of there. He goes off by Himself up into the mountain. And then He goes down and He walks on water to catch up with the disciples in the ship and gets over to the other side and they follow Him. And then in verses 26-29, through 29, it says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. This seems like another step in a good direction for Him at this point. 
in the sense that they're recognizing something's missing in their life. They're recognizing that the things of this world have not been satisfied. When they ate the food that He provided and satisfied their hunger, they noticed something's missing in their life that they haven't had before Him. Which seems like a good indication going forward, but it does not appear to end up genuine. Because as we go on from there, He says, "...do not work for the food that perishes." but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So He's calling them to let go of the things that they're seeking satisfaction in in their life and to cling to Christ that will give you that satisfaction. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him... Now this gives us real insight into where they are. Then they said to Him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So it looks like, okay, they're ready to make the next step. But not so fast. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Put your faith in Christ. Surrender to Him. And what is their response? They said to Him, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? It's like, are you kidding me? The whole reason you're here is because of those works. And then, you know, it just shows the blindness of unbelief to see the very next thing that they say. They say, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus was saying, look, that wasn't the real deal. That was the picture of what was going to happen. Because He says, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, sir, give us this bread always. You know, it kind of reminds me of a conversation that we're going to see when we get to John chapter 14. Because in John chapter 14, Jesus is going to be sitting with His disciples and He's going to be telling them, look, I'm about to go away, but you know where I'm going and you know the way there. And His disciples are going to answer Him and say, wait, 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 we don't know where you're going. And we sure don't know the way there. And Jesus says, I am the way. Well, that's what happens right here. They say, give us this bread. And Jesus is going to say, I am the bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. Well, then He goes into the whole thing about all the eating the flesh of the Son of Man and drinking His blood. And clearly, to eat the flesh of the Son of Man and to drink His blood is talking about believing in Him. How can you have eternal life? It's only through Christ. What does it mean to partake of Him? It means you believe in Him. That's over and over and over that word all the way through this passage. There's a couple different uh, phrases and words that are used. Come to Me. He will talk about believe in Me. And basically what He's telling them is, look, you can't get there without Me. You have to come to Me. And it says, when many of His disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? In fact, in verse 66, and after this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. That's a dark moment. And then the chapter finishes out. It says, so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon says, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life and you're the guy. we got, we got no place to go. We're here. We're committed. And so you know what? What started out to look like you got a whole bunch of people excited about what He's doing and beginning to follow Him to thousands of people following Him and saying, this has got to be the guy. This has got to be the prophet. Jesus calls them on the carpet. Are you really in? Are you going to believe in Me? Are you going to partake in Me? And He's left with eleven. He digs in to find out just how real their faith isn't. He does not play the part of a politician at all. When He first was approached by the crowds, and remember He healed the guy on the Sabbath, and they come to Him and they say, what are you doing? You did something on the Sabbath. Jesus does not back off and say, oh, the Sabbath is very important to them. I better tread lightly here. No. He says, well, you know what? I'm the Son of God. 
Guess who has authority over the Sabbath? And so now they're even madder because he makes himself equal with God. And so now they're mad at him for making himself equal with God. Rather than saying, no, no, you you misunderstood me. This is what I really meant to say. And backing off, he takes it up up another notch and says, basically, I and my Father are one. In other words, he's like, now you're on the right track. Now you're getting it. They don't like it, but they're getting it. But then, as he performs these miracles and people flock to him, and then they want to take him and make him king, now what does he do? More hard sayings. He doubles down again. But the thing that Jesus points out over and over is the sovereignty of the Father. You see, he keeps pointing out to these people who they think they're in control. They think that he needs their endorsement to get anywhere with this. He's like, you guys are missing the point. I'm not the one being judged here. You are. And he keeps pointing to the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of the Father is seen in three different ways. I'm reordering them a little bit. I'm doing it in a, in a logical order, not a chronological order. The first way that the sovereignty of our Father is seen is it's seen in our inability. He says in John chapter 6 and verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He says, look, to, this, to these people, that all of them are going to end up leaving except for the eleven. They're going to wander away. Their heart is bent in unbelief. And when you look at the Bible and it's describing us, it says in, in Romans chapter 3, before coming to Christ, that there's nobody that seeks after God. There's nobody that pursues good. Not one. You see, left to ourselves in our own will, we don't have an appetite for God. We're depraved. And that's what Jesus is telling them here. He's saying, look, without, unless the Father draws Him to me, you, you won't come. John chapter 6, verses 63 through 65, it says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted to Him by the Father. It's like the disciples and the other the crowd, they have one agenda kind of that they want to follow, and Jesus has a different one, a very different one. And he wants this issue on the forefront of their mind. And the issue is who's in control. So some of it kind of comes down to, you know, you ever seen a, a TV show or something like that where there's a dispute and and you know, maybe it's an employee and a and a boss and 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 the, the boss says, gets mad and says, Okay, you're fired and the employee says, You can't fire me, I quit. Or maybe it has to do with a relationship and somebody says, oh, someone, I heard so-and-so broke up with you. And they say, is that what they told you? Because they, they didn't break up with me. I broke up with them. But when you look at this situation, you know there is a legitimate question here. When it comes to salvation, whose will rules? Who's in control? And Jesus is saying very specifically that God is in control. The Father is sovereign in these things. It is seen, first of all, in our ability. Jesus is saying, look, you don't have the ability to come to Him. Well, not only is the sovereignty of our Father seen in our inability, that without Him working in our heart, we will not come to Him. We also see it in our salvation. The last half of verse 37, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. In verse 45, it says, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So, so far we have this. We have our inability. We don't have the ability to come to God on our own without Him doing a work in our heart to bring us to Himself. But then we have the next part of it, that everybody, He says, everybody whom God does do a work in their heart will come to Him. 
You see that connection? All that the Father gives me will come to me. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Who is doing the choosing here? Who is in control? It has to be God. Because if everybody that He gives to the Son comes, then obviously He's in control. There isn't anybody that He gives to the Son that doesn't come to Christ. Later in John chapter 10, Jesus would say something very similar. It says, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Believing or unbelieving is never about a lack of evidence. There's plenty of evidence for who Christ is. It's about the condition of the heart. And that's what Jesus says. Notice He says, you do not believe because you're not among My sheep. My sheep hear My voice and I know them and they follow Me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We usually say it backwards. And it's not wrong actually either way. It just kind of emphasize something different. Because we say if you believe, then you are one of Christ's sheep. And actually Jesus would say that too. But at this moment here, Jesus says it backwards. He says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. In other words, they're not one that the Father had given him. He says, if you were my sheep, then you would believe. You see, that's opposite of the way we usually think of it. You know, we usually kind of put people at the center of everything, don't we? I remember learning about when there was a big dispute between the, the Catholic Church and philosophy and science about whether our world was geocentric or heliocentric, whether everything revolved around the earth or whether the earth was revolving around the sun. And they said, nope, everything has to be revolving around us. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's kind of the way humans are. That's the way we are. Everything has to revolve around us. And so when we come to things like this, this dealing with salvation, we say, well, it all has to depend on my decision. It all has to depend on my will, which your will is involved. I don't want to go far enough to take that away. Your will is involved, but does your will follow God's or does God subject to follow you? But that's really what it comes down to. It has to be one way or the other. Either us-centered or God-centered. And Jesus is making it very clear that it is God-centered. You know, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and this is often one of our go-to verses for when we experience some suffering or, or sickness or, or anything like that. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. No matter what you go through in your life, hardships, difficulties, God's going to take all those things and work them together for good. Do you know that there's only one way that that can be true? The only way that can be true is if God is in control. Now, he, he tells you why that's true. Now, notice the, the very next sentence, for, means he's going to give you the reason why this is the truth. For, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, notice, everyone who was foreknown, was predestined. And everyone who was predestined was called. And everyone who was called was justified. And everyone who was justified was glorified. Let's identify a couple terms here. Glorified is what we will be when we stand in the presence of God. Our sinful nature will be eradicated and we will stand with God in glory. Justified is the moment that you put your faith in Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, you are now absolved of your sins. You're justified before God. You're proclaimed righteous before God. What does predestined mean? 
Well, it means he set out your destiny ahead of time. He, he's making it happen. He's, he's making the events unfold so that you follow, you go down the path that he has intended for you to go down. And whom he has called. Called is that work of God in your heart whereby he quickens you. Whereby he makes you alive so that you can believe. Now, it all hinges on that one word foreknowledge. So what does that mean? Well, foreknowledge can mean a couple different things. It can mean to just know something ahead of time. To just know what was going to happen in the future. Or the word knowledge, uh, a part of that foreknowledge, is um, also meant of an intimate relationship. Adam knew his wife. Talking about, about a very intimate physical part of their relationship. And so it can mean to know somebody intimately. And so which is it? Here's how it plays out. Either God knew you intimately, chose you, or it means God knew that someday in the future you would choose Him, and so He chooses you. You see, it comes down to whose will is this based on? Because it's either going to be that God knew that I would choose Him, and so He chose me, or God chose me, and so then my will stepped in line, and I chose God because He called me, and that call is irresistible. Well, Romans continues along that path and answers that question. Chapter 9, verses 10 to 13, it says, When Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, and elect is what we're called through Scripture repeatedly, that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, what that's saying is that with the birth of Esau and Jacob, God did everything backwards. Right? The firstborn is supposed to be the one with the birthright. And the firstborn is supposed to be the one that takes over the family when something happens to the dad. And that, that's his privilege. But God said, before they were even born, the younger one is going to be the one that my promise goes through. And he says, I did that for a reason. The reason I did that is that you would know that I'm not basing it on anything good or bad that they would do. This is just my will. This is just my choice. So my purpose in election is what carries the day. Well, people that have struggled with this, which I was one of them at one time, would argue back, well, yeah, but he's God. And so even though it was before their birth, he would know what they would do. And he would know what they would be like. But if you follow that line of reasoning, you're going exactly against the whole reason that he told you this is why he did this. So you can't go there. Like we said last, last week, every allegory, every analogy, every parable breaks down at some point. And if, if you try to make it go, well, yeah, but God knows everything from the beginning, you defeat God's purpose in writing this. God says, look, the reason I did that was to tell you that I'm doing this of my own choice and not theirs. I chose Jacob over Esau. Verse 19. He says, you will say to me, then why does he still find fault or who can resist his will? In other words, you're going to say, is that really fair? But they're not going to hell for their inability to choose. They're going to hell for their corruption, for their sinfulness. And so it's completely just. But he says, you know what? You're going to struggle with this. You're going to wrestle with this and say, is it really fair? I've found that that's exactly the problem I have with it. But here's his response. But who are you? Oh man, to answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? The Apostle Paul says, look, I know you're going to have a problem with this and you're going to feel like, is this fair? And here's the answer to that. Who are you? 
How's that sit with you? It's a little discomforting, isn't it? But you know what? Here's the point. It's the same thing that we see in, in John. That's why I brought Romans into this situation. In John, Jesus says, look, you can't come to my Father unless He calls you. And if He does call you, you're going to come. And nobody can pluck you out of my Father's hand. He's greater than all. All of this is happening by what God is doing. Jesus keeps saying, and I will raise Him up at the last day. And I will raise Him up at the last day. And I will raise Him up at the last day. Four times. It's all the work of God that He's chronicling here. And you know what? When they have a hard time with it, and they're going, how, how can anybody grab a hold of this? Um, and people are starting to walk away. Jesus doesn't compromise. He holds strong. He like doubles down. And He says, let me tell you one more time. This is why I told you before. Nobody can come to Me unless He's drawn by the Father. It's important that we get a grasp of this to some extent that our mind will allow us. This is happening according to God's will. It's not God being dependent upon our will. It's us conforming to His will. In, the, in Romans 9, when the Apostle Paul says, look, this is how it works. It's not God just knew ahead that Jacob would, would choose him and Esau wouldn't. That's not how it works at all. God chose ahead of time. Jacob is going to be the one. You're going to have a little struggle with this. You're going to feel like, well, is that really fair? And you know what the answer to that is? You're not God. And you know what? That has been a huge step for me in my relationship with God is realizing that He is God and He's going to be God and He's not asking my permission to be God. And He doesn't even feel compelled to give me the answers to all the questions that I have. Now I'm hoping that someday He loosens up on that a little bit and gives me some more of them. But in the meantime, I think I have a big enough resource to keep me busy on the rest of them that He did answer. But you know, the fact of the matter is you've got to come to the point where you recognize we're a theocentric universe we're living in. Theos for God. We're God-centered world. Not a man-centered world. God's not revolving around my whims. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-5, through it says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked and followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now work, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Doesn't sound too hopeful, does it? And it wasn't. What was our condition before God? It says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. A dead person can't do anything to remedy himself. A dead person can't bring life into his own body. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians, it says, "...even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will." In verses 11 and 12, it says, "...in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory." Very clearly saying that God chose, God predestined, and it is all based on God's will. It is His will that carries the day. God is sovereign. Well, His sovereignty, last of all, is seen in our security. You know, by this time, security just makes sense, doesn't it? Because if God chose us before the foundation of the world, predestined us, called us, justifies us, and has us set on the path to glorification, then how can you be anything but safe? Everything that's happened has been done by God, not by me. I just believe it. And so we are completely secure, and that's what Jesus highlights in this passage. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So there we have the final point that Jesus emphasized. First of all, we had our inability. Nobody comes to the Father unless He's drawn. It's seen in our salvation. He says, everybody that the Father gave me will come to me and they're secure. Jesus was even asked him, are you going to go away now? Are you offended? And what's their response? Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You're the Holy One, the Son of God. Why did you believe? Because God poured out His grace on you. You would not have believed without God's work in your heart. But since He worked in your heart, you can hardly do anything but believe. And when the temptations are there for you to turn and walk away from it now, you don't. Why? Because you're held nice and securely right in the Father's hand as He carries out His will for you.